If you have your Bible, please do open with me to Habakkuk chapter 3. It'll be really helpful for you to have that open in front of you as we look at it together this morning. It is probably evident to most of us who live in Northern Ireland that we are living through a general period of spiritual decline in our land. We may be encouraged by signs of renewal here at Great Vic, but outside, across our city, let's be honest, there is a large-scale disinterest in the things of God. You feel it in your workplace, you feel it amongst your unsaved family members and friends. Where the Christian life and where God's Word calls us to be content with many things in life, this whole area of spiritual decline is something we are not to be content with, either outside in the church or inside our own hearts. As we've seen over the past few weeks, the prophet Habakkuk was living through a period of spiritual decline in his own day. Looking around at his surrounding culture, he was dismayed by what he saw. A government not functioning as it should. People claiming to know God, but moving farther and farther away from any real and living relationship with God. In his own words, in chapter 1, verse 3, he saw strife, contention, injustice, and wickedness everywhere. And as we've seen, he was really struggling to find God in all of this. His prayer that we studied a few weeks, back in, a few weeks ago back in chapter 1 was essentially, Lord, I don't understand why you're letting all this happen and you seem to be doing nothing. Now, most of us will find ourselves at different points in life asking God similar questions about things that are going on that we can't understand. And as Habakkuk expressed his heart openly to the Lord and his own why, how long, what's going on, Lord, questions, over the past couple of weeks we've seen God's response. And God's response was really made up of three parts. First, he said, Habakkuk, I am at work. You think that I'm not doing anything, but I am at work on a higher plane than anything you could ever fathom. I'm raising up the Babylonians as an instrument of judgment to deal with this sin problem. Second thing God said was, my actions may seem slow to you, Habakkuk, but you must learn to wait patiently for my appointed time. My timeline is not the same as your timeline. And then the third thing God said is there is a day coming when I will right all wrongs and I will judge all sin, but until that day, you've got to trust me and you've got to live the life of faith. As God said to Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 4, the righteous shall live by faith. Habakkuk had to learn the lesson of what it means to trust God when you don't understand everything he's doing. That's what we have seen so far in this book. But now as we move into chapter 3, we find the tone of the book 
change somewhat. We get now a majestic, moving, powerful prayer from Habakkuk. It's like he's saying, okay, Lord, I surrender. I will wait for you. I will trust you. But as we'll see, he doesn't wait on God inactively or with a level of indifference. As he waits for God to work in all the circumstances he doesn't understand, he gets to prayer. He starts to pray for spiritual renewal and spiritual revival in his day. He's waiting on God to move, to come, to do something. But as he waits, he doesn't just sit there. He cries out to God to revive his land. Why did he pray in that way? Well, because he knows some history. As we'll see in this prayer, Habakkuk knows the history of God's people. That the history of God's people was a history where they would move through seasons of spiritual decline. But then people would pray. And as people prayed, God would work and come and intervene and awaken lethargic people. This is a prayer for revival that Habakkuk prayers, prays in chapter 3. And this prayer is in our Bible to teach us that part of the life of faith is praying for spiritual renewal in times of decline. That should be part of all of our lives right now in our age of decline. And like so many prayers in the Bible, this prayer is a template to teach us how to pray when we find ourselves in similar circumstances to the author of the prayer. This should be part of our living by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. What should mark that faith? Earnest prayers for God to come and bring revival and renewal on us. And in our land. So we're going to study Habakkuk's prayer. And what I want to do this morning is just draw out two lessons from this prayer that can help us to pray well in this period of spiritual decline that we're in in our land. Lesson number one. It's very simple. Make prayers for spiritual renewal part of your prayer life. If this is not already a large category in your prayer world, I hope you will realign how you pray in light of this message. As we enter our text in verse 1, we're told that this is a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet according to Shigianoth. Now, that is a musical notation indicating that this prayer was not just to be prayed, but sung. Now notice the end of the prayer, verse 19. It is addressed to the choirmaster with stringed instruments. This prayer was very carefully composed and it was to be sung to express the depth of feeling and longing in the prayer. In verse 2, Habakkuk begins the prayer and says, O Lord, 
I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. Now, just for a moment, notice how different this prayer is to his opening prayer back in chapter 1 when he started with another, O Lord. Do you remember back in chapter 1 he said, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? You see, Habakkuk has come to understand that God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so now Habakkuk bows before the sovereign God with renewed reverence and awe. But Habakkuk is also saying here, Lord, I've heard of all the ways you have come in times of spiritual decline in the past. And I've heard of how you have worked powerful deliverances and periods of revival. Now we know that's on his mind because from verses 3 to 15, he recounts all of those wonderful ways God has come in the past and worked great renewal. And so knowing the history of God's dealing with his peoples, after saying, Lord, I've heard the reports of you, I've heard of your work, Lord, I fear you, I reverence you, look at how he continues to pray in verse 2, in the midst of the years, revive it. That is, revive your work, O Lord. In the midst of the years, make your work known. Notice that phrase, in the midst of the years. You see, God has revealed, as we saw last week, to Habakkuk in chapter 2, a vision of what will happen at the end of time. All sin will be judged by a holy God. And Habakkuk is saying, Lord, before you come in judgment, do a work of revival. And his prayer is summarized beautifully at the end of verse 2. In wrath. Remember mercy. He's saying, Lord, be true to your character. You're the Holy One, and you're also the Merciful One. This is a prayer from Habakkuk to God, asking God to revive his work when he sees spiritual decline in his society all around him. And in light of the way Habakkuk prays here, I think this lesson stands for us, that it is good for us to make prayers for spiritual renewal a regular part of our prayer life. We see examples of this everywhere in Scripture. Psalm 85, for example, verses 4 to 6. The psalmist prays, Restore us again, O God of our salvation. Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? We could go to several other examples. But Habakkuk and the psalmists are praying, Lord, stir us up. Stir up our hearts. Stir up the nation around us. Stir up the people in the businesses, in the shops, in the streets, in the homes this morning. Stir them up, Lord. Last week I was making a chili, chili con carne, in the slow cooker. And uh, following the recipe very carefully. And it said about putting an OXO stock cube into uh, a, a jug of boiling hot water. And uh, so I took the wee stock cube 
and I, Lindsay told me to crumble it up, so I crumbled it up, and I put it into the, the, the hot water, and it all just sank to the bottom. So you had this water and dark sediment uh, with this OXO beef stock cube at the bottom. And so I thought, right, that doesn't look right, so put in the spoon and stirred it up, and it was amazing to see how that flavor just lifted up right through the whole jug. That's what Habakkuk is praying here. Lord, our affections for you have gone to the bottom. Affection for you, reverence for you, a fear of your holiness. It's just gone from the society. It's just sitting on the bottom. Stir it up, Lord. That's what he's praying, and that's what we should be praying. Praying this for our city and our nation, praying expectantly, knowing that no revival has ever come about without this kind of prayer preceding it. I was chatting to another friend from Balamina recently, um, hadn't seen him in about 10 years, and he told me that he's living in Kells. And he said to me, not the book of Kells, Kells, but the revival Kells. Now, what he means there is that the book of Kells is Kells in County Meath, in the Republic of Ireland. But Kells in Antrim, near Ballymena, is a place where a small group of men and women gathered in a schoolhouse to pray when they saw spiritual complacency in the land. They said, let's start praying for God to revive our land. And their prayers preceded the 1859 outpouring of the Spirit of God on this land. Or, let me give you another example from history. In 1784, there was a small group of pastors who gathered in Nottingham, England. Andrew Fuller was one of them. That's the man that I was studying over the past three years, doing my THM in. He joined with John Ryland Jr., another pastor, and a pastor called John Sutcliffe. And that man, Pastor John Sutcliffe, in 1784, made a proposal that these men would all start prayer meetings on the first Monday of each month in their churches to pray for revival. There's a minute recording what they agreed on that day. I quote, The grand object of prayer is this, to bewail the low estate of religion. That means to just express our sorrow for the spiritual decline in our land. And earnestly to implore for a revival in our churches. We will pray that the Holy Spirit may be poured down on our ministers and our churches, that sinners may be converted, the saints edified, the interest of religion revived, and the name of God glorified. Let the whole interest of the Redeemer be affectionately remembered, and the spread of the gospel to the most distant parts of the habitable globe be the object of our most fervent requests. That was in 1784. A great revitalization of the churches and renewal followed. And one of the most significant things that came out of this time was just a few years after, in 1792, the establishment of the Baptist Missionary Society, who sent out their first missionary, a man named William Carey. That was the birth of the modern-day 
missions movement. It's interesting that during the 50th anniversary of the founding of the Baptist Missionary Society, there was a conference held, and one speaker who was alive during this time reflected on the impact of the prayer call of 1784. This speaker said the primary cause of missionary excitement was traceable to the meeting of the Association of Ministers in 1784 at Nottingham, when it was resolved to set apart an hour for prayer on the first Monday of every month. This suggestion proceeded from the venerable Sutcliffe. As a result, copious showers of blessing from on high have been poured forth upon the churches. Now, I read that and I just think, do we not long for this in our day? There's so much more. Are you not tired of the lack of power? You know, I'm loving seeing renewal at Great Vic. I'm loving seeing people coming in and joining us. But transfer growth will never change the city. We need conversion growth. God to move by the power of the Spirit to draw people in. They become deeply convicted by a powerful revelation of the holiness of God by the Holy Spirit. They fall on their knees and they cry out to Jesus to save them. Where is that? Does it not tire you? The lack of conversions we're seeing. And here's a prayer in our Bible. A little almost insignificant prophet tucked away in the midst of the Old Testament prophetic books. And he sees decline in his age and he cries out to God to revive his work. And God has put that in the Bible so that this will be part of our prayer language. So let's make prayers for renewal and revival part of our prayer lives. As you pick up the prayer guide, the 30 days of prayer at the prayer meeting on Wednesday evening or whenever you can pick it up, just each day just keep praying for renewal and revival. Even memorize Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2 in the midst of the years, Lord, revive your work. Pray that. If that's not a big category, then I urge you to realign your prayer life so that becomes a significant category. Prayers for renewal. But now we've got to move on and see what fueled Habakkuk's hope as he prayed for revival. This is what we see from verse 3 to 15. And here's our second lesson from this prayer. We can learn to fuel our hope for renewal by remembering times when God came powerfully in the past with renewing power. We can fuel our hope for renewal as in stir our faith up that God would renew by remembering times when God came powerfully in the past with renewing power. 
We see this over and over again in Scripture. God's people in a time of difficulty, remembering acts of God's power and deliverance in the past to fuel their hope in the present. This is exactly what Habakkuk is doing here. He remembers the way God came in the past, both in judgment and mercy. And especially in this section, he calls to remembrance the exodus, the exodus deliverance, when God came powerfully to rescue his languishing people who were oppressed in Egypt. He remembers three aspects of God's previous comings in power to bring renewal to his people. First, he remembers the glory of God's previous comings, what it was like when God came gloriously in the past to renew his people. Verse 3, he remembers a time when God came from Timan, the Holy One from Mount Paran. Now, this is a reference. These are places in the southern Sinai area where God manifested himself to Moses, first in the burning bush and then later to Moses and Israel at Mount Sinai. This was a time when God's people were struggling in slavery in Egypt. They cried out to the Lord, and we read that God heard, God saw, God knew, and God remembered his covenant. Habakkuk says, as he calls this great period to his remembrance in verse 3, this was a time when God came with a splendor that covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. He speaks in verse 4 of brightness shining and of rays flashing from God's hand. God's glory was revealed, but also veiled in the smoke that settled on the mountain. Glory revealed and glory veiled. Remember that. We'll come back to it. God came to judge the enemies of his people and to liberate his own people from slavery and lead them to the promised land. And Habakkuk is remembering the glory of God's stepping down into history to rescue and redeem his people. And he's saying, oh Lord, do it again. Do it again. It's like Isaiah's cry in Isaiah 64 verse 1. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. It's an Old Testament longing expressed for God to come again in judgment and salvation. After speaking of the glory, this aspect of the glory of these previous comings, he now moves on in verses 5 to 7 to think of the power of God's previous comings. In verse 5, Habakkuk mentions the plagues that fell on Egypt when he came to set his people free, when God came in power. He's remembering those great acts of power and glory as God judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians and their gods. In verse 6, he shifts his mind to the power God exerted when he judged the Canaanites and brought his people safely into the promised land. Habakkuk speaks of God measuring the earth 
looking at the nations and they tremble at his power and majesty. Mountains which are great symbols of stability and invincibility bow down to the dust in reverence before the power of God's coming. And the ancient oppressors of God's people, Cushan and Midian, who we read of in the book of Judges, who tried to stop God's people, they tremble before the power and majesty of God. Habakkuk is remembering his history. He's remembering God's previous comings in power and in glory. And he's saying, Lord, you came. You showed your power. People trembled before your might and your glory. Oh, Lord, now there's such indifference. Do it again. Come in power. Cause people to reverence your holy name once again. Well, he remembers the glory of God's previous comings, the power of his comings. And then finally, in verses 8 to 15, he remembers the purpose of God's previous comings. Here in this section, Habakkuk remembers that God's past comings were comings where God brought both judgment and salvation. Let's look first at this theme of his coming in the past to judge those who have proudly rebelled against his holiness. Notice all the different words used from verses 8 to 15 that speak of God's anger against those who have proudly opposed him. Verse 8, Habakkuk asks rhetorically, was your wrath against the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers, your indignation against the sea? He's probably calling to mind there the Nile that God struck and turned to blood in the plagues, the Red Sea that was split in two, the Jordan that was opened to make a way into Canaan. And he's asking, was your anger against the rivers and the waters when you struck and smote them? And the answer comes in verse 12. Essentially, no, the waters were not the objects of his judgment, but the means of his judgment coming on the nations who rebelled against him. You marched through the earth in fury, we read in verse 12. You threshed the nations in anger. Notice how on into verse 13, the second half of it, we read, you crushed the the head of the house of the wicked. This is God coming in judgment against the wicked and those who have rebelled against him. The language in verses 9 to 11 of God's coming in judgment is in intimidating language. Verse 9, we read that God readied his bow and his arrows of judgment. In verse 10, the mountains and seas ran for cover. Isn't that captivating poetry. Verse 11, the sun and moon stood still in their place. That's probably a reference to when Joshua was leading his armies out and God was judging the nations through Joshua and his army and God caused the sun to be still as God judged the nations. Verse 13, as I said, explains that God crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Verse 14, he pierced the warriors who opposed him and his people. Verse 15, he trampled the sea with his horses, the surging of the mighty waters. That seems to be another reference to the Red Sea crossing when the waters closed over Pharaoh and his army and they were trampled underneath the feet of a sovereign God. Now remember what Habakkuk's doing here. 
He's looking all around him in his society at the sin and decline that he sees, and he's expressing his righteous longing for God to come again and judge and deal with all the sin and the brokenness of this world. He's saying, do it again, Lord. Deal with all evil and injustice. Stop the aggressors. Stop the exploiters. Stop the murderers. Bring an end to the traffickers, the strutting around of the proud. But then look at how in the midst of this, he reflects on God's other purpose in his past comings. God came previously with powerful acts of judgment. But the same act of judgment was an act of salvation for his people. So that act where the Red Sea opened and God's people were delivered through it, And then that sea slammed shut and it became a a place not of salvation but a place of judgment for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. That's how Habakkuk begins to turn now and he starts, starts to remember, Lord, your comings in judgment were not just comings in judgment. In wrath, you remembered to be merciful. Look at verse 8 again. Habakkuk asks, was your wrath against the rivers? Your anger against the rivers, your indignation against the sea, when you rode out on your horses, your chariots of salvation. Now, what a picture that is. Get this picture in your mind. Pharaoh chasing Israel down with his horses and chariots. And here the poetry speaks of the Lord coming down, sweeping in in his own horses, and chariots of salvation. Why? To defend his people. Verse 13. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. The act of judgment on Egypt in the Exodus was also an act of great salvation for God's people And Habakkuk is saying, oh Lord, do it again. Come, manifest your holiness. Bring conviction. Judge, but in wrath remember mercy. Be merciful. Bring salvation. Now I hope by now in this sermon, you can see the trajectory this is all on. This prayer is an expression of the Old Testament's longing for God to come in the midst of the years, to rend the heavens and come down, to do a work of both judgment and salvation. Habakkuk is saying, Lord, do it again. Come in judgment. Come in mercy. Ride out on your chariots and bring salvation. Here's a question I want to ask you. Where is the answer to his prayer ultimately found? Think of the Nazarene on the donkey. God riding out 
righteous. Having salvation is he, humble, mounted on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Here's what I want you to do this morning. Let Habakkuk's prayer frame your understanding of what Jesus did in his incarnation, death, and resurrection. He came from heaven. His coming was a glorious coming, but not in the way we'd expect. Glorious because of the humility of the incarnation. He came, John said, in John chapter 1, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace in truth. But as we read in Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 4, This was a veiled glory, so Christ's was a veiled glory. Habakkuk remembered previous comings of glory, and he said, Lord, do it again. And the sun came. We have seen his glory, but not the way we'd expect. Habakkuk had longed for a powerful coming, like the powerful comings of God in the past. Christ's coming was a powerful coming, but not in the way we would expect. It was a gentle and healing power that he came with. He healed the sick. He raised up the broken. He cared for the smoldering wicks and the bruised reeds. And yet he walked on the sea. And he demonstrated his authority over the storms and the waters. There was glory in his coming. There was power in his coming. Well, what of the purpose of his coming? Christ came to bring judgment and salvation. Perhaps more accurately, to bear judgment and bring salvation. His chariot was that lowly donkey, but the people cried out, Save! Hosanna! Because they knew this was the blessed one coming in the name of the Lord, bringing salvation, though they didn't quite understand how he would bring salvation. Verse 13 in our text tells us that God rode out for the salvation of his people and for Notice verse 13, the salvation of his anointed. It's interesting because that's singular in the Hebrew. Verse 13 says, God rode out for the salvation of his anointed. Anointed in Hebrew is Messiah. This hints at something. Even in this little foreshadowing prayer of the Old Testament, There would be a coming in the future where judgment and salvation would revolve around one single figure, an anointed one. So here's how I like to frame Christ's coming in salvation in light of Habakkuk's prayer. Our heavenly Father seeing Satan on his horses and chariots riding out to condemn his people sent his son who rode out to confront him. The Son on the cross bore our sins that justly bring us under God's holy judgment. The Father hurled his judgment because of our sin, but he hurled that judgment at the Son who bore our sin in our place. That same outpouring of wrath and judgment on the Son 
was also a great act of salvation for the people of God. The Father brought forth the salvation of his anointed. He rose his Son from the dead. And now any who are united to Jesus by faith also rise from spiritual death and enjoy all the blessings of God's salvation. You see, God answered Habakkuk's prayer. And in wrath, he brought forth mercy. In the midst of the years, God did a new work, and now there is salvation in Jesus Christ. And when Jesus defeated death through his powerful ascension, he returned to the Father and said he would come again. And so here we are, like Habakkuk, waiting for that day. And here we are called not to wait inactively, but to wait actively, praying for God to come again in power. And maybe a helpful category will be for you to think of it in this way. I pray for the ultimate coming, Christ to return. But as we wait, we pray for temporal comings. Just like Habakkuk. We remember the history of the church, that there have been periods of decline, and then God has moved his church to pray, and God has responded with great revival power in a temporal coming of glory and renewal and revival. And that is what we should expect as we wait for the ultimate coming, temporal comings. So we should not rest content with the spiritual decline we see all around us. We must be moved to pray. Remembering what God has done in the past, these great comings of revival and renewal, saying, Lord, as we wait for the ultimate coming, do it again. Revive your church again. Show your power, your glory. Demonstrate your purposes. We long for that ultimate coming. But Lord, on the way, bring Renewals now. Revive your work in the midst of the years. So this all, I would submit to you, starts with each of us individually. Anytime we pray for revival or renewal, we have to start first with ourselves. Lord, revive me. And so what I want to do is just ask this question. Let's go back to that OXO cube illustration, Okay. Let's imagine that sediment at the bottom are your affections for God. Are they just sitting there, inactive, sunk low? Do you need to pray, Lord, stir me up. Stir up my affections for you. Revive me, Lord. Are you hungry for God? Are you thirsty for God? Are you like a bubbling brook overflowing with love for the Lord? If not, say, Lord, I'm not going to rest content with this. I'm going to pray that you'd revive your work in my heart this morning. And then flowing out from that, we can pray, and Lord, let that overflow. 
Do that across Great Vic. Do that across the other churches that are faithfully proclaiming the word in our city. Do that right through this island. Do this across the nations. Revive your work, O Lord. Send Pentecostal flames. That's what we need more than anything else. More than fancy programs. More than slick pastors. You need a fresh rending of the heavens and the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit working on people's lives. Are you longing for that? Or are you just sort of happy with the status quo? We want to be reduced to trembling before a fresh vision of the Holy One and then restored to peace and joy as we remember again the amazing work of Christ in that work of judgment and salvation. This salvation is ours in Christ and we must be that people praying, Lord, do it again. Let me close with some excerpts from A History of Revival. This was taken from a book called Sounds of Heaven, recording and documenting the revival on the Isle of Lewis from 1949 to 51. Here are just little excerpts, recordings from that time where God swept through the Isle of Lewis with power. On the Thursday, we had an after meeting at 11 p.m. in house number 28 on the street. As we prayed, the atmosphere changed and we became very conscious of the presence of God. Something happened. It was as if the power of God swept through the house. Most of us sensed the awesome change and a number came under deep conviction of sin. The power of God was intense. It was a wonderful evening of the revelation of God's presence and power. Mr. Campbell reports on the 28th of June, 1950, I look back with gratitude to God for all I've witnessed of the mighty power of God during the past six months. Of meetings in a place called Ness, he says, there was a mighty manifestation of the power of God in the meetings last night. Wave after wave of Holy Ghost power swept over the meetings and strong men were broken down and crying for mercy. Early in the new year, 23rd of January, 1952, the same man reports, last night we witnessed a mighty manifestation of the power of God. As a young lad from Arnold was praying, God swept in in power, and in a few minutes, some people were prostrate on the floor. Others with hands raised up, they fell back in a trance. We were in the midst of it till one o'clock in the morning. On Friday evening, we had such a great manifestation of the power of God in the hall at Crowlista. I had to stop preaching until the cries of the people who came under the power of God and conviction became more subdued. Do it again, Lord. Do it again. They were not crazy charismatics. They were all like Church of Scotland, kind of the most conservative Presbyterians you could get. God breaks in in this way. All of that fear. I wonder what the people to the left and right of me think. It all fades away when people become conscious of the holy. So as we long for this, we are to be active. Remember 
These are seasons of God's coming with power. These don't seem to be the constant normal experience of the church. Seasons of decline, seasons of renewal. Let's remember we're told in chapter 2, verse 4, what do the righteous do? (laughs) As they wait, they live by faith. Faithfully reading their Bibles, faithfully praying, faithfully coming to church, faithfully serving the Sunday school, the creche, faithfully putting out cups of tea and coffee. But as we are the righteous who live by faith, let's not lose the, the expectant hope for more. The prayer that says more, Lord, more power, more vision, more revelation. Let's be a people who are praying for renewal. And do you know where that might start? Wednesday night at the prayer meeting. I know you can't all make it. I know it's not easy for some of you coming back late from work. That's okay. But let's really pray in our prayers for God to do a new work. Let's pray what Habakkuk prayed. Lord, I've heard the report of you. Your work, Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive your work, O Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for seeing to it that this prayer would be recorded in our Bibles. The Old Testament's expression of longing for the coming of the Messiah. Come, judge sin, but in wrath remember mercy. And the only way that those categories can come together is the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of your Son, Father. Where heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world with love. Father, we've been speaking of those times when you have come very powerfully with special outpourings of your Spirit. And reverently, and even with a little bit of fear of what you could do, we pray, Lord, Do it again. Revive us. Revive Belfast. Revive our land. In the midst of the years, revive your work, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. But I think the hymn we're going to conclude with is helpful because it speaks of our sins that are many that deserves judgment, that deserve judgment, but speaks also of that mercy of God, which is more. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's stand together and respond.
should have said before I close that I decided to save Habakkuk's final little prayer to next week. I was going to end the series this week, but I thought there was just too much in that last section for us to miss. So we're going to see Habakkuk's beautiful response next week. Make sure you come back and don't miss it. Let's pray. Father, um, we have been asking that you would stir us up. And we pray that that image of sediment being stirred up would be in our minds and in our hearts and in our longings as we go from here. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen.